navigate the journey to becoming a great lawyer with expert guidance on topics that range from trial skills to corner office management. Here you will learn how to tap into your potential for legal greatness. I'm Andrew Smiley, and this is The Mentor, ESQ. Thank you all for joining me today on The Mentor, ESQ. Uh, Very excited to talk about uh, introversion and It was surprising to me to recently learn that a huge part, a huge component of our legal community is made up of uh, lawyers, uh, professors, law students, uh, legal practitioners that grapple with the issue of introversion. I've always heard of generally what it means to be introverted, but until I recently read a book called The Introverted Lawyer did I learn how detailed it gets and what the science is behind it and how introverted people and introverted lawyers really grapple with um, different areas that would normally appear in the practice of law involving public speaking and presentation, class participation. So to dig deeper into this topic and to share with everybody uh, what it means to be an introverted lawyer. Uh, I brought the author of The Introverted Lawyer to join us, and I'm so honored and happy to have our first professor of law to join us on The Mentor ESQ. We have Professor Heidi Brown. Professor Brown, thank you for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. And um, today we're going to talk about what it means to be an introverted lawyer. Uh, are you an introverted lawyer? Yes, I am a thousand percent an introverted lawyer. I was an introverted law student. I was an introverted lawyer and I'm an introverted law professor now, <laughs> proudly. And you are a law professor at my alma mater, which I always like to give props to Brooklyn Law School. Yes. Very exciting. <laughs> Great. Why don't you give us a little bit of your background, you know, uh, where you grew up, how you came to this position where you are now, and along that journey, when you really discovered um, that you were an introvert, and when you discovered that there's actually a a science behind it, and that you are not alone, and that it uh, it is a phenomena out there that some people may not be aware of. Definitely. So I grew up in Virginia and I went to the University of Virginia for college and I loved college. I was a nerdy, good student. I I took tons of classes. I double majored. And in college, I I didn't really have to speak in class very much in my large lecture classes. Oddly, I took a lot of foreign language classes and I loved speaking in those classes. It was strange. I didn't feel self-conscious speaking in French or Italian. Uh, but I, I always was nervous to speak in my, my big classes, but I loved college. I did well. And, and when I graduated, I immediately applied to law school at University of Virginia as well, the, the school of law there. And I got in, I was only 21. I really had no idea what I was doing. And my, I don't have lawyers in my family. And when I got to law school, especially being at the same institution, I thought law school would be just like college. I could do my, you know, study, research and write and be my quiet self, but we all know that that's impossible in law school. So I started getting cold called in my large lecture classes in law school, and and I was incredibly prepared for class. You know, I had highlighter ink all over my hands. I had outlines and flow charts and flashcards. But anytime I would get called on in class unexpectedly, my brain would just completely go blank. And I was scared. I thought, oh my gosh, you know, am I not cut out for this? Everybody else seemed so excited about raising their hand and 
doing all the simulated oral arguments and negotiations, all that good stuff. And I just wasn't finding my groove in, in law school. So I did fine. I didn't do great in law school, but I, I did fine. And fast forward, I ended up getting this amazing summer associate position. I, you know, I had law school debt. I needed a paying job. And I sent out 100 resumes and I landed a really incredible summer associate position at a firm that just happened to do construction litigation. And I literally didn't even know what litigation was. Uh, I didn't know the difference between transactional litigation world. And I certainly didn't know anything about construction. But I loved, again, the research and writing. I was good at it. And in my summer associate jobs, I didn't have to do those performance activities. I, you know, we, are, we were so junior, we, there was no way they were going to put us in front of the clients yet. But I still got nervous when I spoke to the partners. And even though they appreciated my writing and were trying to build up my confidence, I, I was nervous and scared. So I ended up getting a job after law school at that same firm and worked in construction litigation for the next next six years. And, and then I switched firms, but I'll talk about that in a second. And again, the research and writing came really easily for me. I mean, it was hard, but I, I loved it. But they threw us into the fire pretty quickly to, get, to go all over the country, taking depositions. I didn't go to court too much in the early days, but I would be so incredibly nervous in my depositions, even though I, I had binders of, of deposition outlines and all my exhibits lined up. And I was so prepared, but I was very easily rattled by these really tough male construction lawyers on the other side of the table. So I, I ended up switching firms in about six years into my career, moved to New York City and worked in a big law firm downtown. And the same thing was happening. I Again, I was incredibly prepared. I, I had done the work, but the performance activities of my job really rattled me. I changed firms again, worked for a small boutique construction litigation firm, and I was sort of their chief brief writer for a while. And But I had to go around doing depositions and some court appearances, and it just continued. I felt like for 15 straight years, I was trying to fake extroversion and, and um, mirror the behavior of these tough, gregarious, aggressive guys and it was causing a lot of internal conflict in me, but I, at the time, I thought there was just something wrong with me. Uh, everybody else is good at this. Why aren't I? So to get to your question, what, what changed my whole view on, on this is teaching. So I, I was working out, I moved out to California for a short period of time to work on a giant power plant case that we had going on at the time. And I ended up getting invited to teach a legal writing course. So I was teaching and litigating at the same time. And I was terrified when I walked into my first classroom as a, even though I'd been legal writing for, you know, 18, 15 days, 17, 18 years by that point, I was nervous. But I, what I realized in teaching was that my brightest legal writers, my most thoughtful problem solvers in the classroom, my most creative, eloquent, thinkers and, and writers, again, were also the students who were afraid. They were afraid to speak in class. They were afraid to get cold called in the Socratic method. They were nervous about oral arguments. So that's what really prompted me to start researching this, because I felt like here we have the, this new generation of lawyers, but all we're doing is telling them to fake a different personality. And I wanted to see if there was a way to save them from 
15 years of angst that I, that I struggled with and grappled with. And so that's what led me to start researching this. And it really opened my eyes to the power of being an introvert as a lawyer. And then also how we can untangle the fears that some of us have, which is completely separate from being an introvert. Did you start to learn that there were, before even doing research, just anecdotally, that there were many other people that were feeling the same way as you, that, hey, I'm smart and I'm working hard and I'm prepared, but I'm really freaking out when I have to go speak with a senior partner or go to court or, you know, speak to clients or be out there in in person? I will say that in my 15 years of practice, nobody talked about it. We pretended we weren't afraid and, and I was terrified and, and it really took a toll on my mental well-being, my physical well-being, my relationships. We did not talk about it. My, my firm literally had a t-shirt, softball t-shirts that said losing is not an option. <laughs> um, we've faked it. And, and I don't think that's a good strategy, by the way. But it really took me listening to my students, my law students, to hear echoes of what I had felt as a young attorney. And that's what made me realize, you know, there's a lot more of us out there and and legal education doesn't, in my experience, hadn't really uh, paved the way for us to talk about these things openly. People still felt like they had to pretend they were confident. But I, as you can tell from my writing, I'm more of the mindset that, hey, let's talk about this because there are a lot of us in the profession and we deserve to be there. We have so much to bring to the table. And if we if we really get to know our introversion, get to know how it's different from shyness and social anxiety, it's different from fear, we can then untangle all of that and appreciate the assets that we bring to the profession and then focus on the things that hold us back sometimes in interactive activities. How prevalent uh, are introverted lawyers in our profession? Pretty prevalent. I mean, there's there's statistics that say that uh, like 59% of the gifted population is actually introverted. Not, so I don't know how that translates exactly to, I don't know if anyone's studied introversion, exactly the stats in the legal profession, but there are a lot of us. And it makes sense because we're drawn to the thinking, the research, the writing, the deep processing. Not that extroverts don't do that too, but but there's so many of us that that are attracted to that task of of thinking and dissecting and discerning the law. That it that it makes sense. The the conflict that I see is that you know the the stereotype of lawyers, especially in America, is ready to argue at a moment's notice and fist pounding and, and um, you know, very actively engaging outwardly. But so much of our jobs, whether you are, I did a lot of transactional work actually as a litigator, we drafted a lot of construction contracts and negotiated them. You know, no matter what task you're doing, you have to be able to process things internally and think and take time. And, and introverts are great at, at those tasks. But stereotypically, we're, we sort of get these messages, you know, be loud, be, be confident, get in there, don't, don't hold back. And for a lot of us, that just doesn't come naturally. And, and we shouldn't have to be that way to do our jobs really well. So for the listener that's hearing all this and saying, hmm, I wonder if I'm really introverted. I never thought of it before. I thought maybe I just didn't like to speak in public. Um, can you 
share with us, you know, how how you define and how it is defined introversion, uh, what it means to be introverted, sort of uh, if you're going to check off certain boxes and you're and you're uh, listening to this podcast, how can you identify as being an introverted lawyer? Great question, because I think our, our again, our American society tends to lump all these labels together. If you tend towards being a quiet person, a lot of times the labels we hear are introverted or shy or aloof or a loner, but it's introversion is very different from shyness and social anxiety. And the major ways that introversion is different from extroversion are, are sort of two ways. First, the way we process information and stimuli and questions coming at the, us. Introverts process all of those stimuli. You know, obviously every day we're bombarded with all these different stimuli, whether it's questions or, or legal terminology or, or legal issues or conflicts or the news or whatever. We process all that deeply and internally, whereas extroverts process it externally. And there's science that shows that we actually, the two personality types use different neurological pathways to process information. So it's not that introverts are unprepared or disengaged or don't care or aloof. It's that our brains are literally just taking the time they need to process these complex concepts. And we do that internally. Whereas an extrovert, I, you know, for law students, I use the example, you know, if you call on an introvert in class, we're, we need a, a minute or two to recall the information that we spent so much time studying last night. Whereas an, an extrovert, the natural response is to start speaking because they're processing the information, same information externally. So whether whether they're getting it exactly right is is not so much the concern quite yet. They're just doing their natural uh, processing externally, but it can seem because of the way our society is structured, it can seem the extrovert is more engaged when really the introvert is vetting and testing their ideas and concepts and solutions to problems internally, which is a good thing. We just don't afford them enough time to do that. Now, all of that is very different. Oh, secondly, the, uh, the way we rekindle energy. So introverts can be very, very highly functioning in highly stimulating environments, but eventually we hit a wall and we need to, because our energy is depleted. It can be depleted gradually, but it's definitely depleted by all that stimulation. So I, you know, I'm a New Yorker now, so I like to use Times Square as an example of the most highly stimulating environment you can possibly be in. Horns honking, lights, cameras flashing, tons of people, uh, noise, chaos, movement. You know, introverts can handle that, but eventually we're like, okay, I got to get out of here. And what I never realized as a lawyer is that that's what depositions felt like for me. And that's what going to court felt like for me. Like if I go to a courthouse, even now, um, taking my students there, it's that sensation of, you know, the metal detectors and the bailiffs and the docket, finding the docket and being around all these stressed people and then watching things happen in the courtroom. All that anticipation can be very draining for an introvert. We can do it, but eventually we hit a wall and really need to, to decompress in a quiet, solid, solitudinous place. So whenever I, and, and also when we work, we can't have a lot of distractions. I, I remember in, in my law firms, you know, I inevitably was in an office next to somebody who played loud music or like had loud conversations all the time. I was just like, I just need to close my door to edit this brief so I can file it. And I can't 
concentrate. That doesn't make me a bad worker. It actually just is a different way that my brain needs to process competing stimuli and then also rekindle energy when I'm, when I'm wiped out. But as a young attorney, I didn't know that. So at the end of a seven hour deposition, I just wanted to go back to my hotel room if I was on the road and think and decompress. Whereas my extroverted colleagues were just raring to go for more, more, more. <laughs> so those are just the two main differences between introversion and extroversion, which then we can get to shyness and social anxiety, which is totally separate. Do most introverts have some aspect of shyness and social anxiety as well? No, I wouldn't say that there's a direct link. I think it's it was huge for me to realize that they're completely separate. So you can have an incredibly confident introvert who never experiences shyness and social anxiety, and you can have an, uh, an extrovert who loves social engagement, gains a lot of energy from parties and, and Times Square type events in the courthouse, but that gets really nervous. So it's shyness, I didn't know this until I started researching, but shyness and social anxiety are a fear of judgment or a fear of criticism. Now, when I, you know, I write very openly and vulnerably in my books about where my shyness and social anxiety comes from, it can come from shame. Um, like, so if you're, if you reflect back on childhood experiences or upbringing, I, I just happen to live, uh, be brought up in a family where shame can kind of be triggered uh, a lot. And, and so I brought that into my adulthood where I worried a lot about what people thought of me. And in, it was really heightened in law school when, you know, when you're called on in a class of 80 students and I hesitated, I was scared of being criticized publicly. I was scared of being judged as not competent or not worthy or like I didn't belong. There's a lot of fear of like exclusion or rejection. For me, I, as I write in the book, I also have this very robust blushing response. So when I'm nervous, uh, I turn really red. And so that also triggered like the shame thing. And so shyness and social anxiety are really a wholly separate phenomenon where some of us grapple with fear of being excluded from a group because we perceive ourselves as, as not competent when we completely are competent. And so it's really important to separate these concepts so we know what we can actually work on and how to do it. So are certain um, types of attorney uh, roles and positions, for example, I'm a trial lawyer, I'm a litigated, uh, I speak in front of people and juries and lectures all the time. Uh, I would think that what I do uh, would be a good fit for an extrovert. I would imagine I am an extrovert, although in reading your book, I certainly have some introverted parts uh, within me um, that would be probably surprising to people. Um, but what would you say to someone listening now who says, oh, that's me, I'm an introvert, but I always wanted to be a trial lawyer, but I guess I can't really be a trial lawyer if I'm an introvert. What would you say to that person? I would say you can absolutely be a trial lawyer and you, you will probably be great at it because you're an introvert. So, so let me just reflect back my entire legal career if I mostly hid the fact that I had these, these stressors, but if I ever did confide and, you know, well-meaning mentors or my parents or, you know, people I worked for, if I ever did confide about these, these stressors, they would say, well, well, I mean, they would say things like, well, you, you know, you chose this profession, just, just do it. 
or they would say, well, maybe you shouldn't have gone into litigation or maybe, you know, if you, if, if it causes you so much anxiety, you should just find something else to do with your life. And I, I remember, I remember thinking that is the worst advice <laughs> in the history of, of humankind. And I see it happening now in, in legal education where, you know, quiet students are basically not, this is not universal. I'm generalizing, but a lot of quiet students perceive messages that, okay, you should just go into transactional law, or maybe you chose the wrong pathway profession because you don't want to argue. Well, my response to that is, first of all, having been a partial transactional lawyer, we still have to negotiate. We have to present to clients. So transactional law does not mean you don't speak aloud or that there's not anxiety. Instead, though, instead of perpetuating this this myth, in my opinion, that only extroverts can do certain types of lawyering or that extroverts are best suited for our profession, I instead think that we should talk about the strengths. We should teach introverted individuals the strengths that they have, because I didn't even realize I had these strengths. And, And then there's other things we can do to amplify our voices authentically. Obviously, we do need to be able to speak aloud with confidence, with vigor, be excited about it, whether you're a litigator or a transactional lawyer. But some of us, and I'm one of them, needed to learn how to do that without faking extroversion. The day I stopped faking extroversion, and trust me, this has been a long journey and I still work on it every day. Like I got nervous coming on here today with you. I haven't seen you blush yet. (laughs) It's happening. Um, (laughs) The day I stopped faking extroversion was so liberating because I could finally I could finally work on how to amplify my quiet voice, but, but in a way that's powerful in a different way for, for those 15 years, I tried to act like the guys across the table and it was so not me and it caused so much internal conflict. And as I mentioned, it really took a mental health toll. So to answer your question in a long winded way, we can teach future lawyers or current lawyers that if you're introverted, you can do any aspect of the law and you can also learn how to amplify your voice authentically so you can step into conversations and stay in conversations when you need to be heard. I know you have a a detailed multi-step process for how to help and train introverted lawyers to feel comfortable in classically extroverted environments. Can you give us a a general overview of how someone who is an introvert can be uh, an excellent trial attorney and can feel comfortable giving an opening statement and cross-examining a witness or speaking uh, in front of a room full of lawyers? Yes. So again, it goes back to sort of separating out, um, figuring out how we thrive best as introverted workers and lawyers. Um, you know, I, as I mentioned, I like a quiet space. I need to shut my door during the pandemic. I've, I have an awesome work from home situation. I, I, I'm so productive. Whereas in the law firm, in my law firm days, I did, I was not as productive, but I didn't know how to articulate what I needed from the guys I worked for to have that quiet space. So that's one part of it. But the the more important thing or equally important thing is in amplifying our voices, what I needed to do, and it took a lot of research to figure out how to do this and pulling pieces of advice from experts in introversion, but also shyness and social anxiety, 
the two major components to it for me has been mental reflection and physical reflection and then mental action and physical action. So the mental piece was huge because what I didn't realize was that every single time I was stepping into a performance scenario, whether it was a deposition or court or teaching my first class as a law professor, or speaking at a terrifying faculty meeting, I tell myself these, this negative mental soundtrack that was from stuff I either interpreted or misinterpreted from mentors and coaches and authority figures decades ago but I was continuing to play that soundtrack on a loop and, and I still do it, right? So, so it's, it sounds touchy-feely for lawyers, but there's a huge piece to this that we need to sit down and, and think about and transcribe the unhelpful stuff we're telling ourselves about being an introvert or being quiet or being nervous. What's the mental soundtrack that you have to do away with that many introverts have? So for me, it's, I mean, it's going to be personal for each person, but for me, I had, I, when I, when I finally started listening to it, it was stuff like, okay, you know, you're going to, you're going to hesitate. You're going to turn red. They're going to think you're not, they're going to know you're nervous. They're going to think you're not prepared. You're not competent. You, what are you even doing here? Um, you know, your, your voice doesn't matter. It would be this terrible, terrible stuff that, that frankly I did hear from, you know, coaches and, and just people in the past or authority figures. But I, it's, I have replayed that over and over again. So, I mean, it's, there's this great book by a woman named Ivy Neistat. She has, her book is called Speak Without Fear. And she writes, you know, that this process is not a blame game. We're not going to call up our high school coach and be like, you ruined my life. Um, but it's huge to really transcribe that negative messaging and realize where it may have come from and then realize how outdated and irrelevant it is. I mean, I was literally inviting these people into every performance and I don't even know if they're still alive. Right. So, <laughs> so I had to say, no, um, I, I kind of like the firefighter mantra of stop, drop and roll. So when I hear this negative stuff, which I still do, cause it's, I've been practicing it for 30, you know, years of adulthood, um, I catch myself now I, I've trained myself to catch myself and stop. I'm not literally going to drop and roll on the ground, but I, I stop. And then now I launch like an accurate soundtrack. Okay. You've done the work. You've worked really hard to be here. You know what you're talking about. You care about these issues, whether it's a legal issue or something I'm teaching or presenting and you're entitled to have a voice. You're entitled to, you can turn red, who cares? Um, so I just kind of repeat, it's like 30 seconds. I just catch myself remind myself the work that I've done to be here, remind myself I don't need to sound like everybody else. And that's actually a good thing. And then I roll with it. And, but for me, I have to layer the physical on top of the mental, because for me, I, uh, a lot of my, not only my introversion, but my shyness and social anxiety and fear has a huge uh, physical manifestation. I, I mentioned the blushing. It might not seem like a big deal, but to any blushers listening, you know that when you feel that heat on your face, your neck, and you worry that people can see it. I mean, I remember sitting in depositions across the table from, you know, scary older male attorneys who could see the stress creeping up my neck and they would use it as, as a weapon against me. 
And so I had to understand how to control my physical, I, I can't control the blush, but I can control my reaction to it. So I started learning about how to do a physical survey. And so just like the mental survey to listen to your soundtrack, we also have to do a physical inventory. So what do our bodies naturally do to, to try to protect us from what they think is a threat? So I realized my body instinctively, it thinks it's helping me, but it tries to get small. So my shoulders cave in, I cross my legs, I cross my arms, I, I hunch down. I'm, my body is, you know, our, our bodies and brains don't know how to distinguish between threats. They just perceive a threat and go into overdrive, whether it's, you know, they, our bodies and brains can't distinguish threats, like perceive threats, like feeling turbulence on an airplane or seeing a, a scary shadow in the water when you're swimming versus getting ready to give a speech. Like we, our brains and bodies just automatically respond. So my body responds by getting small, which only blocks my airflow and energy flow and my oxygen and my blood flow. So of course I, I blush. And then I also can't breathe and my heart beats really fast. Wow. But until I started studying this, I had no idea. So the physical action plan is, first of all, ramping up our, um, you know, fitness and physical activity in advance so we can feel stronger and understand how our bodies work better. But in the moment, sensing when that's happening again, and just like stopping the mental soundtrack, we stop the physical because I'm instinctively always going to cross my legs, arms hunched down. But I realize it now and I'm able to say, no, okay, put your shoulders back. Whether I'm standing or sitting, I put both feet on the ground. Again, shift my shoulders back, open up my hands and, and breathe <laughs> as deeply as I can. And then I can get a, a grip on the mental again. It's fascinating. You know, a lot of what you're talking about, uh, I think even non-introverts have moments of experiencing that. Uh, most people look at me, for example, uh, I try cases, I lecture a lot, the podcast, uh, and they say, wow, you know, I wish I could be as comfortable as he is. He gets up there and, and I'm known in my summations, I can talk for an hour without looking at a note and, and all of that. And, and I've always thought it's just my key was preparation, preparation, preparation. Uh, and then when I read your book and I saw a lot of the um, the steps that you have to help introverted lawyers to feel more comfortable are a lot of the steps that I've been preaching and practicing innately um, that tap into those areas, I guess, where I am have those little bit of introversion uh, aspects to my personality. And I find that the preparation, writing things out in advance, um, I've even when I get anxious in a courtroom setting and things aren't going my way, I'll start to get hot and I'll start to sweat and how to learn to deal with that. And like you said, I get nervous. Oh, my God, I'm sweating. I'm sweating. The jury's going to see me sweating. What do I do? And um, and that makes things worse. Right. Like if you're blushing and you're worrying about the blushing, it makes it worse. So taking a deep breath, learning how to control my breath, having control over it, being prepared, knowing it's going to come and go. Um, these are all things that are so important for people to be aware of and know that it's, you know, it's natural. 
everybody. I'm always nervous before the start of a trial. Everybody is. And um, sharing this and sort of talking about it because people don't realize they see me get up and give a, a great summation for an hour with no notes, don't realize what I've done to prepare for that moment behind the scenes to allow that to happen. Um, so it's important that people like you and me share this. So everyone we are out there, we all know we're not alone. This is very natural, but it takes some work and some acknowledgement, right? It absolutely does. And, and just to layer on your mentioning of preparation, back in the day when I was practicing law, you know, and, and I would confide my nervousness, people would just say, well, just prepare and you'll be fine. I'm like, I am preparing. I am prepared and I'm still scared out of my mind. So the preparation, as you touched on, is not just the substantive preparation because we're doing that. We're good at that, right? It's also the mental preparation, the physical preparation, anticipating you know, if you can research the room you're going to be in or and the, the environmental dynamics around. I mean, all of that is preparation that for people like us who do grapple with this, this stuff, we layer on top of the substantive intellectual preparation. And you're right, it does take extra work, but what I've tried to do for myself and what I try to teach my, my students and like junior attorneys is if you, like athletes, if, if you have a system, there's this great uh, sports psychologist named Bob Rotella, and he, he, he says, train it and trust it. If you can set up a system like an athlete would to train, train our substantive minds, train our bodies, train our, um, our, our emotional minds, and then you step into that arena, then you get to trust your training. And that is just huge because we just, just prepare and you'll be fine was never, ever going to work for me. I was preparing intellectually and it was not enough. You, in your book, uh, which is great, and I recommend that everybody introverted and not or unknown, uh, how you identify, uh, read The Introverted Lawyer, because there's so many elements of it that apply, uh, whether you're introverted or not. And one of the things you talk about in your multi-step process uh, for being a successful introverted attorney is what you call the pregame, uh, the mental pregame, the body pregame, elements of which you've discussed. And what I liked that you talked about, which I... Uh, do myself, and I can't stress enough, is going to the courthouse, going to the judge's courtroom. Uh, if you know you're going to have a trial, go look at the courtroom if you can in advance. If you know you're going to be picking a jury and you haven't been to that jury part or in that county or that courthouse, go there in advance. See the jurors, look in the jury pool, look in the rooms, know where you're going to be. If you have a big oral argument in front of an appeals court, go sit and just watch for an hour beforehand. These are all things that you recommend, which I recommend and I do, because when you it's it's a matter of controlling um, external variables and external forces that we don't have control over. And so you're nervous about showing up at the courthouse. What's the judge going to be like? What's the courtroom going to be like? What am I going to have to deal with? So the more you can prepare yourself in advance as an experienced lawyer or a young lawyer, um, the more that's just going to help you, uh, introverted or not, and make you successful with all the other preparations that go into place. Absolutely. And, and you mentioned that the book can be helpful for non-introverts. I genuinely believe that the more that extroverted law firm leaders and mentors understand introverts, they will cultivate 
work environments where introverts can thrive. This is not about coddling the quiet person. This is all about setting us all up for tremendous success. And yeah, just as, as you said, no, pre, the pregame in terms of researching the environment, for us, it's all about knowing that overstimulating environments can sap our energy. So if we can, like, like you pointed out, you know, gain a little bit of control through knowledge like if we know what the lighting is going to, even for me, little things like, or things that seem little like lighting or noise or, um, you know, space, um, where I'm going to sit, all of that is external stimuli that if I'm distracted by it will drain my energy. But if I know it in advance, I can set myself up for success with that. That's one thing I've really noticed in terms of working from home through the pandemic is that I've been able to control my environmental cues around me much better than when I used to go into situations. I joke that the the words that introverts dread to hear at any conference are pair up or, you know, (laughs) and so when I first got on, you know, got accustomed to zoom and everyone was obsessing about breakout rooms, I thought, Oh God, you know, this is just like pair up and, you know, pair and share. But what I realized is that doing that on zoom, I'm not changing my physical seating situation. I'm I'm in my same comfortable environment with all my favorite things around me that I've curated over my travels and set up the way that I thrive in. And so uh, doing these interactive presentations and, and meet and greets and things on Zoom as an introvert, of course, it took me a little while to get used to it, but I realized why I'm I'm so happy is because I don't have to constantly recalibrate all those environmental changes and shifts that come from stepping into another conference room or another classroom or another courtroom. I've, I've set it up so I can not be distracted by all of those distractors and just focus on the intellectual engagement, which is cool. It is. It's really cool. And it's a fascinating point. I've been uh, talking uh, for the last several months during this pandemic that as horrible as it is what's going on in our country and in this world, that there have been certain positives to take out of what we've been forced to learn as far as how we do what what we do on a day-to-day basis. And I found a lot of positives in efficiency, not having to commute, in the efficiency of Zoom mediations, depositions, meetings, arbitrations, all of that. And it seems to me that uh, this pandemic has been a a time of um, of, of benefit for the introverts out there because of that exact reason, right? I completely agree. I I wrote a short piece for the ABA journal called Four Lessons We Can Learn from the Pandemic. And I write about, I mean, I don't emphasize introversion too much in the article, but but I agree. There's so many of us who, well, of course, we're mindful to all the challenges that people are experiencing during the pandemic. And many introverts are experiencing those as well, obviously. Um, But, or and, we can thrive because we are able to curate spaces where we're more productive. And um, also for, for people who, you know, are doing a lot of Zoom meetings, layer introverts run the meetings because, <laughs> because we, we we understand how to minimize the distractions, like, like having a, an agenda, using the hand raise feature, muting people, because we we get how distracting things can be and how distractions can undermine productivity. 
but I've seen just introverts completely blossom as meeting leaders, students. I'm watching law students who never would raise their hand in class because they know how to activate the hand raise feature or participate in the chat. There's so many more media of communication in what we're doing now that's giving quiet individuals a platform that we would never have if we have to interrupt five extroverts in a meeting. (laughs) It'll be interesting to see how, when we get on the other side of this pandemic, which I'm confident we will, um, I've been preaching that, you know, many of these new, uh, technologies we've been using and and ways we've been efficient will remain. And I'm curious how this will help introverts moving forward and how we may have a hybrid system of learning uh, that that can can benefit all the introverts out there uh, moving forward permanently. I agree. I've been sort of keeping tabs on what educators have been saying throughout at all levels, elementary school, high school, college, and, and really observing how quiet students are are shining in, in these moments. I mean, obviously I don't want to minimize the challenges that students and parents and, and teachers are are grappling with to use our word. Um, but I do think there's a lot of things we can learn about how to make interactive environments more inclusive that we don't pay attention to as well when we're not in situations like this. So I agree with you. I think there's so much we can learn and then and that can improve the way we run businesses and solve problems and resolve conflicts and teach and practice law. I want to um, touch on something that you mentioned earlier and you talk a lot about in your writings about not faking it and not just do it and just try it and just fake your way through it, but to be yourself. Uh, because I've always uh, believed in that. And I've worked with, I've coached and trained lawyers and law students, uh, especially in trial skills. And one of the things I often see is people think that they're supposed to be a certain way when they're cross-examining a witness. They think they're supposed to be a certain way when they give an opening statement or a closing statement. And uh, they may see a lawyer like me or someone else that they think is doing a good job and try and mirror or model that. And I, I stress that that is not what you should do, that it is so important that you be you, you do you, as we say, and that you can be extremely effective um, just by handling things the way you would do it and be ineffective if you try and act like someone else. And and I'll give just two examples I can think of. I had a case once, uh, it was a medical malpractice trial and and the lawyer that I knew was gonna be trying the case for the defense against me, you know, through all the pre-litigation discovery, I was like, this guy's a dud, man. He doesn't say anything. He's really quiet. I can't picture him being a good trial lawyer. And, the, the the short end of this story is he he won the case. Uh, I lost the case and he was in trial. I'd never seen a trial lawyer the way he was in that he was just very quiet. He was very methodical. There was no flash. There was, you know, instead of cross-exam and getting up and yelling and getting the witness's face, he was real quiet from his podium, real specific with his questions. And, and, and by being quiet and being thoughtful, all eyes were drawn to that in the same way all eyes can be drawn to someone who's being more dynamic. And it was really effective. And I was really impressed to see that. And now having read your book, clearly this person was a, a true introvert, but just like you said, absolutely successful in the forum of a, of a trial. And 
in coaching, a separate story that I think of is in coaching trial students at Brooklyn Law. Uh, we had one woman on the trial team, a law student, who was very quiet, but it was obvious she was very bright. And she was just so trying in her cross-examination. She would stand up there and try and be sort of tough. And, and I'd say, no, 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 you can't do it this way. Just be yourself. And it's interesting that so many people have a hard time being themselves. And it's really, it's a lack of confidence. It's a lack of comfort in, in being who they are. So I can't stress enough to those listening uh, that it just, just be yourself, have confidence that you don't need to be perfect. You don't need to know everything. You don't need to be a certain type, but if you are prepared, you can be yourself and be extremely effective and sometimes more so. I wholeheartedly agree. And, and the, my, sequel to the introverted lawyer book is another book I wrote called Untangling Fear in Lawyering. And one of the steps I talk about there is comparative fearlessness. And it, it was important for me in my journey to realize that there are aspects of my personal life in which I'm not afraid at all. But it, and, and those are situations where maybe society would tell me I should be afraid, but I'm not. But then in the, my lawyering activities, society kind of tells me, well, don't be afraid. Like you signed up for this. And then I had to discern the difference. And so it's so important for us to realize, as, as you pointed out, we, we can be ourselves, we are strong, we are smart, we are hardworking, and we don't have to be loud and, and rude or obnoxious or disrespectful to, to be heard. It does take, to use your word again, methodical thinking. And, and as long as we're doing things methodically and we have stuff written down, I so wish I could go back and redo all those depositions and <laughs> negotiations, knowing what I know now about, about how powerful I can be if I just do me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's important to, to feel comfortable with knowing that you don't have to know everything. That's something that I've learned. And I think as I've gotten a little older in age and in years of practice, I've started to learn what wisdom is. I'm wondering how you feel about that, that it's just, it's doing, it's being, it's, it's having experiences. And over the last several years, I've started to learn that it's okay not to know things and realize that as lawyers, we generally don't know a lot. Um, we're always learning things. We're always researching and looking things up and we just don't know things. And I think most lawyers and law students are, are, are not comfortable with acknowledging that they don't know something. They feel like they have to have an answer. And I've gotten to the point in my career where I'll be asked questions at a CLE and I might just, instead of trying to bluster my way through some kind of answer, I might say, you know what, I don't know the answer to that. That's a really good question. And go from there about how to get the answer and how to find it out. I also tell young lawyers don't be shy about asking questions when you get to a courthouse. I've been doing this for 20 plus years and I'll still show up sometimes at a courthouse that I may not have been in before. I'll ask, where's the jury part? What time does this judge get on? How long do I have to give my presentation? How does this all work? So if you're a young lawyer, it's okay to ask that too. Ask questions when you get to a courthouse. It doesn't mean you don't know what you're doing. Um, feel comfortable asking in unfamiliar territories. And the more that lawyers of all ages and experience levels can take comfort in knowing that they don't have to know things and it's okay to acknowledge that and ask questions. I think the more comfortable, comfortable uh, there will be and you can be in, in going into unfriendly territory. A thousand percent. When I first started teaching law, 
which was now 12 years ago, I, I thought I had to know the answer to every question a student asked, or they would think I was a fraud and want their money back. Yeah. And I taught evidence to a, a class of 135 students. And as, as you, you um, have called out of me, I only ever practiced civil litigation. I never did any criminal work. But to prepare to teach, I learned the evidentiary rules for CRIM. But my students would ask these most convoluted, incredibly brilliant questions that I just did not know the answer to. And I, I finally let myself say, you know what, just as you said, that's a great question. And I, I need to investigate that. And I'm, we're going to talk about that in our next class. And I just found like it, it bonded me with my students so much more to actually admit <laughs> that the law is so complicated procedurally and substantively. We can't possibly know all the answers. We know how to find the answers. And, and that's where the confidence comes in. We don't need to pretend like we know every single thing. It's impossible. And we'd be lying if we said we did. So I just think that's a, a huge thing. It builds our credibility. And, and yeah, it's, it's what we need to be teaching young lawyers to do. I want to talk about uh, fitness and exercise and physical health for a little bit with you. Um, I believe that it's really important for lawyers, law students, people involved in this area of practice and daily life um, to exercise, that a healthy body creates a healthy mind, uh, that many of us are very mental. We have things running around our head nonstop, and that's what makes us good and analytical and good at solving problems and issues. But it's sometimes I say hard to get out of my head and hard for many of us to do that. And I find the best way is through exercise. I love to play tennis. I practice yoga. And um, and I find that through, and I work out, and I find through all of that, that it's a nice way to give my mind a break. Um, and also I feel good. And by giving myself that physical health uh, results in mental clarity. Uh, yoga practice um, helped me through my last trial. When I started to get stressed during times, I took a moment to breathe. Yoga, if anyone practices, will acknowledge that uh, breathing is a huge part. And many of us don't practice our breath and our breathing. And I know in your book, you talk about that. And even in one part of your book, you're like, take a moment right now while you're reading, take a big breath. Didn't that feel good? Take another one. And we don't. Um, I'm guilty of it. That's why I need to practice yoga because I can go, 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 go. And then it's like, <gasps> okay. Um, tell me what if any role fitness plays in your world and in the world of introverted uh, people. Yes. I mean, growing up, I never thought of myself as an athlete. I was always sort of envious of athletes, but I have been trying to work on fitness for years and um, doing spinning classes and running. And, and now I take boxing lessons and kind of hearkening back to what we were talking about earlier with um, the train it and trust it thing. I love feeling strong after I've exercised such that I, my, it does clear my brain for, for that moment. I'm able to come back from exercising and dig into a hard project. And I find so much more clarity comes to me immediately after I've exercised, but also it helps me when I'm in those stressful moments. You know, I have a, I have to speak at a lot of faculty meetings and it might not sound intimidating, but it's very intimidating. <laughs> and I realize in the moment when I'm, when I'm about to speak that I remember how I felt when I finished a boxing session, I was drenched with sweat and I was red faced again, but I felt really strong. And I just remind, it enables me to 
trust myself in performance moments that, you know, if I didn't pass out in a 60 minute boxing session yesterday, I'm not going to pass out right now. And, and so I just, again, have to recalibrate my physical self and step in and trust that I, that I've got this. But one thing I, I wanted to point out is I know some people might think, oh, well, I'm not into fitness or sports aren't my thing. I've been reading a lot lately about just physical activity. So, so even there's so many benefits even to just walking or dancing or painting a wall, even like any type of activity that they define as moving your um, energy level above resting, even that has positive benefits for our, our mental health. And, and so, especially during this pandemic, which I agree, I, I think we're going to pull out of but while we're still in it, we got to make sure that every day we are moving our bodies in some way, go for a walk around the block, do stretching in your, in your home. Um, because it all really does give our minds a break. And we build this trust that when we do feel that anxiety, we remember, Oh wait, you know, I felt really great after I did that one exercise activity, I'm going to feel great again now. It's funny you say that because talking about just being outside and doing something, whatever it is, uh, where I am now, um, many of you know that I, my office is in Midtown Manhattan. I live in the city, but I also have a home where I've been since March working remotely. And it's in um, very, it's in Northwest Connecticut in a very rural area, lots of land and farms and cows and horses. And one thing that this city slicker has gotten into is working the land and trimming trees. And I've gotten all of these outdoor tools and chainsaws and, and, uh, and I find time if I have a break in my work day now where I get off my computer to get outside for an hour. And I start doing this work and trimming off limbs off of trees and, you know, and uh, trim lining up uh, areas. And I love it. And I've started speaking to other people I meet up here and they're like, oh yeah, isn't it great? And I've, I'm finding this community of people like myself that just like to work the land and work outside. And you realize whatever your thing is, taking a walk, if you're in the city, just put on your mask, go for a stroll, put on a dance class, whatever it is. It's just so important to do something like that. Absolutely. I totally agree. <laughs> So let me ask you, I ask everybody uh, who comes as a guest uh, on the podcast, um, how would you define what it means to be a great lawyer? Obviously, you've met a lot of lawyers, a lot of law students, a lot of professors. What's your definition of a great lawyer, Professor? I do think a great lawyer is one who is authentic to one's own personality and that also uses our profession for good rather than evil. <laughs> and, you know, I, I worked with a lot of really intense personalities over the years, and I, I learned a lot from them about, about writing, which I love. You know, I define myself as a writer even before I define myself as a lawyer. But I also um, encountered, you know, really tough personalities that were not always nurturing. And I mean, not that I needed to be coddled and nurtured, but that were not always good for my mental health. So I think a good lawyer cares about the soul of our profession and does not demean or belittle or bully people, but instead understands that everybody in our profession brings tremendous assets to the profession. We all deserve to be here. And with a little bit of understanding and appreciation for differences in how we practice law, we can really elevate our profession and reignite the soul of our profession to really 
change our society and the world. That's a wonderful definition. Thank you for sharing that. And I think you're describing yourself as a great lawyer because the work you're doing uh, in the field of uh, opening up to the whole introverted legal community, um, information, uh, ways that they can uh, better themselves and better the profession, you are doing that. And I'm so appreciative of that. And can you share with us for those listening who want to learn more about um, being an introverted lawyer, about how to uh, become the most accomplished lawyer that you can be uh, if you are introverted, what resources um, are available if you can talk about your books and, and, and what you use as a resource as well? Sure. Yeah. So I have a lot of resources. I have a website, theintrovertedlawyer.com, and, and my books are available on the American Bar Association publishing website, but also Amazon, Barnes and Noble. I also encourage everybody to look at the um, the task, the National Task Force on Lawyer Wellbeing has tons of amazing resources and toolkits for not only I've I've written a couple of worksheets for them on introversion, but also public speaking anxiety. But any issue that that you might be grappling with, there's um, Anne Bradford is the author or the the curator of the um, National Task Force uh, Wellbeing Toolkit. You can just Google it and it's available. That to me has just been such a tremendous resource for leading me to other resources. So that's a really great place to start. And uh, a lot of bar associations are doing lawyer wellbeing initiatives as well that have tons and tons of resources available. That's great. And we'll put your um, website link. Uh, the listeners can find that in the description for this podcast. So um, you can certainly go to that link uh, and find these additional resources uh, to help you. And uh, Professor, I can't thank you enough for, for uh, joining us on the Mentor ESQ. Uh, it's been great having you as a guest, and I look forward to having you back as a guest if you'd be kind enough to join us in the future. I would love to. And I, I love hearing from people about their own journeys. So people should feel free to reach out. I'm on LinkedIn. And um, a, a lot of law students reach out over like Instagram. I'm introverted lawyer on Instagram. And it, I love connecting with people who have grappled with a lot of these topics. So, you know, I'm, I'm happy to chat about to anybody because I feel like this, this is so important for the future of our profession. So thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. That's- That's wonderful. Thank you. And thank you uh, for listening uh, to this episode of the Mentor ESQ. I'm sure you enjoyed it and found it fascinating with our wonderful guest, Professor Heidi Brown from Brooklyn Law School. And uh, if you did enjoy this podcast and you're uh, one of my regular listeners, I'd ask that you please share it, forward this uh, to your friends, your colleagues, your classmates. Uh, Give us a good review, like it. And uh, tune in uh, for the next episode of The Mentor ESQ. I'm Andrew Smiley, and thank you for joining me. See you soon. 